listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastures, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Sensenegg. I use she, her. Julie Hoke, she, her. We have Dr. Jesse Curtis on the show. He's a guy I met when he was studying his PhD at Temple University, and he wrote a book called The Myth of Colorblind Christians. I read it, and I interviewed about him about it. It's such a good book and a great, I, I think, a good interview because Jesse is such a good dialogue partner. And I hope you enjoy It's a history, okay? So it's less theological and more historical. Um, but I think it's a very entertaining journey, so I hope that you enjoy that. I'm excited to share that with you. The show is going to be great. But we're going to start with Talkback, which is an elemental part of what we do in Circle of Hope, and we'll end with spiritual show and tell. Talkback's when you email us at resistandrestorepodcast at circleofhope.net, and then we respond. Since no one did that, we're going to pull <laughs> from the Sunday meetings where Talkback also happens. Does that sound okay? Yes. 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 Thank you, Johnny. I love Talkback. We're always doing Talkback. Talkback is like evidence of this conversation that we're always having with God and each other. And you're right, we we do it like in real time in the Sunday meetings with one another so that it's not just, you know, a sermon coming from a speaker and being received, but that it's it's this conversation that that we keep engaging in. So, um it, around South Broad, we've been looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and particularly the beginning where he gives these beautiful statements of reality that we call the Beatitudes. And we're, we're just exploring them together. And this week it was, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And in Talkback, one of, one of our friends, Hannah, uh, I, I, I'm, I, this is not going to be an exact quote. I'm sorry, Hannah. But you said something so profound um, that every it seemed like everybody in the room was agreeing with um, something like you realize that you you even blame yourself for not being able to receive God's not being good at receiving God's love like <laughs> like we were talking about receiving mercy <laughs> and um, and how it's hard to just do that and not need, not feel like we need to be worthy of it or work for it. And um, man, we we were just resonating with your honesty and your insight there. Like, is anybody good at receiving God's love? I'm not sure. And yet that's like blaming ourselves for not being good. Like, it's like condemning yourself for being judgmental <laughs> it's like it's a double condemnation yeah exactly <laughs> like the gift of mercy is to receive it and then on top of the difficulty of receiving it you then blame yourself for not being good at receiving it <laughs> it's like we're we defeat ourselves all the time right right it doesn't have to be earned when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and calls him good teacher, Jesus says, who is good but God? So Jesus is modeling that good, that, that um, humility that we bring when we receive the love of God freely. It's humble to do that because you didn't, you didn't earn it. You're just receiving it. You know? And I, for me as a parent particularly, it's helpful to understand this because 
I can understand it in a new way because the love I strive to give my children is an unconditional love. And even though I fail at expressing that, I know what the desire to do that is. I know it's within me. And if God loves me as perfectly as I want to love my children, that puts me in a much better position, you know. So, like, any good that I do on earth is made better by God. And actually, for me, recalling when I don't, when I fail, and confessing my failure, and then receiving God's love back is really helpful to decenter myself from the equation and just try to receive God's mm. love of me. Mm. That, that is the heart of it, isn't it? Like yeah. that we are so um, conditioned to center ourselves in relating to God that we miss the the opportunity really is to center God and that and God's mercy and in doing that opens up a whole freedom to live into. Yes, yes. Let me let me close with this um, passage from Hosea because it it describes this um, this crazy love and mercy of God that is that is like a good parent. I, Johnny, I love how you were bringing in your role as a dad. So the the people are like running around on God essentially they have they have distractions they have other priorities and God's love is relentless um um even when it seems like God is ready to give up on them mm. this is what God says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my child but the more they were called the more they went away from me they sacrificed to idols and burned incense to images it was I who taught them to walk, taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they return to bondage and their enemies rule over them because they refused to, to repent? They call me God Most High, but they turn from me. But, God says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like acquaintances? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I destroy them. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against them. They will follow the Lord. Mm. Thank you, Julie, for telling us to center God in the story and not ourselves. Mm. I think that leads us to the hope we need. Blessed are the merciful. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. We're so glad to include you in our life and in our body and in our community. There's a lot of ways that you can help this podcast reach others if that's something that you want to do. If you like it and you want others who might be moved by it to receive it, like the podcast where you where, where you listen to it. Give us a review that's positive, like a five-star review would be great. Tell us why you like it. Two, subscribe to the podcast channel. That helps more people who are looking for podcasts like this see it. And then three, share it with friends. 
um, share it personally. That personal connection matters more, and I think it matters more than the algorithm. So, what you do personally can help us more than what we hope the software does, if that makes sense. And then you can you can connect with us on Sundays too. All of our meetings are on Zoom, so you can get a Zoom link that way. Maybe not all of them, but there's enough that you can find one that you can connect to. Or you can come in person if you live in the Philadelphia region. And also you can connect to a cell online as well. You can share money with us. Go to circleofhope.church and find the uh, button for giving and sharing money with us. Helps this podcast roll. It helps the whole church go. And it changes us too. So there's a lot of opportunities for you to connect while you're there. Check out our mission teams, our compassion teams, our daily prayers. There's a lot of way for you to to receive the what we offer as a community and also to be a part of it. So thanks again for listening. Hey friends, I'm so pumped that my friend Jesse Curtis, Dr. Jesse Curtis is here on our show. He's a, he studied in Philadelphia. That's how I met him. And he wrote this book, The Myth of Colorblind Christians, Evangelicals and White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era. I've been following your career for some time. I knew when you were writing it, your dissertation, and then this book came out. Um, I was excited to read it, and I'm so glad to have you on the show. Jesse, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me, Johnny. I really appreciate it. Yeah, right now I'm a professor um, of history at uh, Valparaiso University in Indiana. Uh, But as you said, Johnny, I was in Philly for quite a while, and that really shaped me. Uh, I think the book is uh, not just you know, a, a book from nowhere, but it's a book that reflects the fact that I was living and studying in Philly. And so I really miss the city. Uh, and uh, that certainly has shaped me quite a bit in terms of uh, my interpretations and my research. Because um, when, when you lived in the city, you lived in like the nice town area, right? So you kind of yeah. have, am I right? Your family is white. So you're married to a white woman and you live in a white area, but it's in one of the blackest neighborhoods in yeah. Philadelphia, right? Yeah, and that, that was important to us. Uh, and and we had previously lived in Chicago for some years. And, uh, you know, it was a way to try to kind of, uh, in some sort of quiet way, uh, try to opt out of this American system of segregation. <laughs> and, uh, That's so you know, cool. people, people would think that, like, uh, white people would ask us like, how's your ministry in Philadelphia? And I was like, well, we don't have a ministry. We're just living here. And, you know, but uh, it was more useful for us than it was for anyone else, I suppose. But that's quite a formative experience. So I, I'm glad that it informed how you wrote this and researched it. Um, I want to get into the book. We're going to try to move through a lot of it. So I, I hope this conversation isn't too long, but um We'll start with the first chapter. You you taught me so much as I was reading the book, um, and you introduced us to Howard Jones, um, who, in my experience, wasn't someone that would come up when we're talking a lot about anti-racism and um, and and in in the church. But he's a black evangelical who is kind of connected to Billy Graham, is that right? And he has a storied history with civil rights in particular. Can you explain the the significance of Howard Jones when it comes to civil rights? in the 1960s. Yeah. Well, because of that association with Graham, 
I don't think any other black evangelical had a platform as large as he did. Uh, and Jones is a fascinating figure to me. Uh, his background, he grew up in Cleveland. He, uh, his high school sweetheart, Wanda, had a conversion experience. And Jones at the time was like, you know, I'm, I'm jazz is my thing. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to be a star. And Wanda said, hey, Howard, it's, it's me or the music because I'm following Jesus. And this was like kind of a fundamentalist Jesus, you know, like we got to leave the theater behind, no dancing, mm -hmm. the music, mm -hmm. all of that. And uh, so Jones follows Wanda into this, uh, this uh, fundamentalist uh, Christianity. And uh, he's a pastor. He's uh, doing missions work in West Africa. And it's actually during Billy Graham's famous 1957 crusade in New York, Madison Square Garden. Graham is thinking, OK, the crowd is all white. You know, how can I reach out to black New Yorkers? And he reaches out to Howard Jones and says, how, how can I do this? Can you help me? And Jones says, well, Billy, I, if they're not coming to you, I think maybe you need to go to Harlem. And so Jones uh, becomes the Graham team's first black evangelist. And uh, this is major because like Billy Graham is, you know, at the center of what evangelicalism even is in this moment. And Jones comes onto the team and from that position, that place of prominence, he really challenges white evangelicals to repent, to repent of racism. And it's such an interesting sort of combo because Jones, it's not as though Jones was liberal <laughs> in, in any no, sense. No, not, not at all. You know, um, deeply conservative, uh, absolutely convinced that the gospel was the answer to the nation's racial troubles, um, convinced that evangelicalism was the answer. But for sort of precisely for that reason, deeply disturbed uh, about evangelicalism's failure uh, to oppose racism. And so uh, Jones, well, I, I could keep going, going. I don't, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, finish the in. thought. So he, he challenges white evangelicals to actually apply their faith, to be more biblical, you know, in, in his terms. Um, and he says, because we're one in Christ, you must include me. Uh, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, racial discrimination is wrong. And it's incredibly, uh, it's a powerful message in that moment where racial discrimination was routine. So that idea, one in Christ, because we're one in Christ, you have to include me. In my reading, you characterize that as a colorblind approach. Can you explain a little bit about what colorblind Christianity is and who colorblind Christians are? Yeah, yeah. So Jones is expressing a kind of colorblind Christianity. That's right. He uh, is not the sort of figure I'm thinking about at in the decades to come as, as colorblind Christianity sort of morphs and, and develops. I think it's helpful to first put it in the context of 
what scholars are usually talking about when they say colorblindness. Yeah. And usually when we say colorblindness, we're talking about this racial ideology that really became prominent in the decades after the civil rights movement, especially among white Americans, really as a reaction to efforts to uh, reduce racial inequality, whether it's busing in, in education or whether it's affirmative action or various programs. And the reaction says, we need to stop thinking and talking so much about race. And the solution is not systemic. The solution is not new laws or reforms. The solution is let's have a changed consciousness. Let's judge people as individuals, not as groups. Let's judge each other by our character, not our skin color. This is the ideology of colorblindness. And, but when we talk about colorblind Christians, we're talking about people who uh, agree with all of that that I just said, but shift the sort of the ground of the solution, uh, the basis for this colorblindness. They shift it to the gospel uh, itself and the church. And, and again, like those, those words of scripture, we're all one in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. So the solution to racial problems is the gospel and not just, uh, but a particular interpretation of it, right? That uh, we don't need to uh, change the way power works in our church or uh, things of that nature we just need to become conscious of the fact that in Christ, we're united. We're all one body. And so we don't need to be talking about race. And in fact, if we're mature Christians, we wouldn't be thinking mm -hmm. so much about race in the first place because our identity as Christians comes first. That's colorblind Christianity. And so, for example, like these days, when you hear people say, you know, oh, race, it's a distraction from the gospel. Uh, which we hear all the time, right? That's and you classic. get into that in the book too. We'll get to that too. Yeah, classic colorblind Christianity. So as you keep going through the text, you talk about uh, white college campuses are, are are a feature here, and you you'll eventually contrast them with white churches. But white college campuses are trying to bring more black students to them. There's an actual effort to do that, right? And there's the idea that. Diver that diversity is important, and this happens in the 60s, and then Martin Luther King's uh, assassination occurs, and then there's a shift in tone. How does such a cataclysmic moment in the civil rights movement change college campuses in terms of inclusion of Black people, and then like a focus on justice um, as opposed to just um, diversity? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know that and, and diversity might be a little bit misleading. I mean, it's a great question. The, I think that Black students are brought into white evangelical campuses in the late 60s in the interests of we need to be places of Christian orthodoxy, Christian community, and the ground is shifting beneath their feet such that a segregated space no longer seems like a wholesome evangelical space. Like to be overtly segregated now risks being discrediting. And so uh, I, I don't know that it's quite like a contemporary diversity ideology, um, but it's a, 
it's the idea that if we're going to be a wholesome Christian community, we need to welcome uh, all Christians here, all people who would share our faith. And there's a sense that, uh, you know, this is going to be pretty simple. You know, we have these wonderful educational institutions and the task now is to just welcome some black people into them, you know, and uh, King's assassination is um, it's a galvanizing moment. It, in some cases, it's the trigger that leads institutions to say, okay, we've, we got to, you know, we're behind the game here. We've, we've got to act. We, we have to play a role in being the solution to this racial crisis. Uh, but at the same time, this is, I mean, it's the late sixties, these black students coming onto campus in many cases are uh, advocates of black power or, or if not advocates of black power, they're certainly aware of it and are, you know, influenced by it. And you have black students combining uh, this robust racial consciousness with their Christian faith and white students and administrators are baffled, <laughs> like what is going on? And uh, there's, there's a lot of controversy, uh, you know, even something as simple as black students saying, oh, well, we're going to form a black student group, you know, a space where we can be together, where we can feel comfortable on this white campus. And you have white students and administrators saying things like, this is a Christian campus. This is no place for any kind of race conscious group. Uh, so even something like that becomes controversial. Um, and following King's assassination, it's a moment that affects the entire black community. You have all these black kids on campus and then they, they get, they're empowered, right? Something changes in them. And, and then there's hostility towards them from white people. Like yeah. you, you weren't supposed to act this way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, one student in particular, I, I tell the story who was, uh, at, uh, gosh, what's it called? Los Angeles Bible college or something that it's now actually the master's university, John MacArthur's, uh, institution. Oh yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, um, at the time, you know, and he, he famously told the story of how, uh, he actually was, on campus when the news of King's assassination arrived and he was in his dorm room all alone listening to the radio and he heard this commotion down the hall and here his white dorm mates were cheering uh cheering that that King had had died and uh this was this was Dolphus Weary uh was his name and for the rest of that semester uh, he, you know, like you said, the, the change, he said, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to be an activist here on campus. I'm going to educate my fellow students. I'm, I'm going to, uh, stop trying to just fit in and be the so-called good Negro, you know? And, and so there is that sense of sort of radicalization and white students, respond there's a lot of indifference right there's a lot of like oh you know i don't know what's going on here and then there's that uh hardcore of uh hostility and reaction and and saying 
this is just not right. Why are we talking about race? We're, we're supposed to be Christians here. It's amazing how there's like nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> you know, like that. I mean, we see, we hear that right now. There's the yeah. still, you know, there's still that kind of rhetoric right now, mm-hmm. like especially around public schools and race education and critical race theory and all that. Like it's, it's really um, like the, the, the demon of racism just is not that original, right? It keeps yeah. coming up the same themes, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was struck by this part in your text. I hadn't read a lot about the church growth movement um, in the 1970s and you uh, um, really do a nice job of explaining its origins in circle of hope, 1970s, California, Definitely was influenced by that, as far as I can tell. Someone could correct me about that if I'm wrong, but my feeling is that it was. Uh, um, and I was struck by this quote, Donald McGavran. Is that how I say his name? Yeah. It's it, And it, that's the founder of the church growth movement. Yeah. Says, men like to become, so men, he starts with men, so we already know it's kind of sexist. Men <laughs> like to become Christians without crossing racial and linguistic or class barriers. And the idea was homogeneous churches grew faster. That's still common knowledge in church planting circles. As someone who's been a church planter and interested in it, having a target group, a target demo of people you're going to work with, um, and diversity um, across race, language, and class is often seen as an an inhibitor of that. So is it fair to say the church growth movement started as a fundamentally racist (laughs) movement? You, I, I think it's fair. Um, I think it's it's less interesting to put it that way, because <laughs> because I, I think there's so many fascinating sort of uh, changes that take place over time with this movement. I, I do think it's it it is fair to say, look, this was fundamentally flawed from the start. Uh, but I I think that what's interesting is that it begins in India. That's where McGavran was a missionary. Mm -hmm. And so for McGavran in its early forms, it's fundamentally about caste in India. And it's fundamentally about, we need to stop trying to make Indians become Western. We need to stop turning them into Western individuals. We need to allow them to come to Christ as groups within their social context. Okay, and and when you put it in those terms, you can sort of squint and see the the um, the reasonableness of it. Do you you see what I'm saying? Sure. So you're not making Indian people white. We're not talking about. So so it's not that's that's interesting. Right. It's it's the the idea that homogeneous churches. And I understand this as an Egyptian, you know, like I know what it's like to have an Egyptian church and ethnically you know, homogeneous church and what that means to the people and what that means to our body. You know, mm-hmm. like my parents, you know, we went to, we called it an American church, right? Cause we were thinking in terms of nation that, you know, nationality yeah. more than race. Yeah. Um, and we were definitely like little weird ones out of the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then we went at night to an Egyptian church. So mm-hmm. like, I get that vibe, you know, I get that idea. Um, uh. So you're, so I, I do think that is racist. But it's not like a, 
necessarily like a white supremacist idea or something like that, I think is what I'm yeah, hearing you say. Yeah. And I mean, there, there were people right from the beginning saying like, no, like the call of the gospel in the Indian context is to cross caste boundaries. Like we can't reinforce them, but McGavran is saying, wow, if we're willing to work within caste lines, we can have these whole people movements to, to Christ. And you know, there's a quote from from his first book that's, you know, sort of even more extreme than the one you read, which is that uh, he says it does no good to say that tribal peoples ought not to have racial prejudice. He says they do have it and we can use it to spread the gospel. <laughs> and what so, does he mean by that? Well, well, he he means what what I just said, that people's ethnic loyalties that, that they don't have to be asked to transcend them, that instead, as whole groups within that context of ethnic loyalty, they can come to Christ without ha having to surrender that strongly felt uh, identity and without having to worry about crossing these, uh, these lines of, of ethnicity and race. But I think that part of what makes it so odd and a strange trajectory is that McGavran really didn't have any thought at that time of applying these ideas to the United States. That was not in his mind at all. That's really interesting. Um, that's interesting. And I, I want to touch on that later when we talk about this uh, Houston conference debacle. Um, so McGavran eventually would incorporate um, anti-racism into church growth, right? Like well, he moved in that way a little bit. Well, see, no, see, this is, this is where it gets complicated. And uh, so he, he comes back to the U S he had spent most of his life in India. He comes back to the U S in the fifties and he is still, uh, he's still thinking of his church growth ideas as a global South thing, a thing for missionaries to use. And in the context of the U.S., he's just, you know, kind of bouncing around at different cities, doing little teaching stints here and there. And he's seeing the segregation of the church. And he's like, this isn't right. Just as like a concerned citizen and, and a Christian. He, so he goes to Indianapolis. And where does he go to church during his six months there? He goes to a black church and he's the only white guy there. And he says, hey, you know what? We should do a membership exchange. Let's get people used to going to uh, churches with people unlike themselves. But he could—he was free to do that precisely because he wasn't trying to apply his church growth ideas to the U.S. I think what changes, this is the key pivot point, comes in the late 60s. Because in the late 60s, you have the rise of Black power, you have sort of the ethnic revival of white Americans saying, oh, I'm not white. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Italian. Uh, I'm Irish. You, you know, people are sort of sure, rediscovering sure, sure. their roots. And in that context of like black power, people rediscovering their roots, people asserting their ethnic identities, McGavern's like, oh, the U.S. looks a lot more like the rest of the world than I thought. Maybe here too, people's racial and ethnic loyalties are crucial factors in the growth of the church. See, that that is like a light bulb that, that happens 
but it, it doesn't happen until the late 60s. And McGavin kinds of kind of turns his back on those earlier ideas about integrating American churches. Mm. So that so there is a shift and and and, and there's a moment where um church growth people actively resist social justice and racial justice, right? Yeah. And and there's even moments where evangelical evangelism, let's say, is pitted against social justice as if they're two, as if they're mutually exclusive. So yeah. what was their argument for that? And then in your opinion, in the historian's opinion, how <laughs> aren't evangelism and social justice pitted against each other? <laughs> Well, yeah, so two parts there. I'll take the first one and then I'll use one of my characters in the book to make the second point rather than Fair necessarily enough. doing my own. Uh, I mean, I agree with the character. So uh, I, the pitting social justice and evangelism against each other, on the one hand, we could say, well, gee, in conservative, conservative American Protestantism, this goes all the way back to the early 20th century and the divergence of different Protestant streams in the fundamentalist modernist debates and things of that nature. But in the 50s and 60s, there, there are more points of divergence. And for McGavran, uh, it is again that late 60s moment where he begins to feel that the Protestant mainline, ecumenical Protestants, are really uh, leaving behind any real sense of a transcendent, uh, spiritual, miraculous gospel message of Christ dead and risen for your sins, and instead are just talking about social justice. And McGavran, and of course, he's not alone in this, McGavran really reacts against that. Like he used to earlier in his life could kind of hold social justice and evangelism together. But as he's reacting against ecumenical Protestants, he begins to insist that evangelism is absolutely chronologically and ethically and, and prior, you know, to, to social justice. So that becomes central to the church growth movement and evangelical church planting, you get people in the door, you evangelize, you kind of worry about the ethics later. You know? Well, that's, and, and, and I can tell you that the preeminence of evangelism can often be used, can often be weaponized against anti-racism and against social justice. Um, and in Absolutely. my experience, it is conceivable that anti-racism and social justice can actually be evangelistic. Hmm. I, man, I think that's a a, a huge point, um, and I boy, I really agree with that. Because uh, because if you're anti-racist and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, but you're boldly anti-racist, some folks, yeah, yeah, some folks are going to be turned off. But a lot of the people that are going to be turned off are Christians anyway, <laughs> or they say they are. But if but but some people might stand up and take notice, like, wow, that guy says he's a follower of Jesus and he's doing the work. Yeah, totally. Know, of, of, and, you know, so anyway, I that's I, our I, hope and circle anyway. Yeah, that's such an important point. Um, but anyway, that relates to this question of, you know, there are other evangelicals who who insist that 
no, these go together and you can't separate them. And so people like Renee Padilla, uh, people like Clarence Hilliard, people like John Perkins and uh, Renee Padilla famously clashed with the church growth movement. And his whole thing was like, how can we say that there's repentance, that there's a real turning to Christ and a following Christ without ethics? Like, we need the ethics of the kingdom of God in play here. And so for people like Padilla, race, social justice, these are central concerns Absolutely. to the gospel, because in what sense can we say that we're spreading the gospel when we're just accepting these demonic things that are so contrary uh, to the teachings of Christ? And so there is throughout the 60s and 70s and beyond evangelicals are debating these things like at the Lausanne conference and um of course i think people like padilla had the better side of the debate <laughs> but uh they didn't unfortunately within mainstream american evangelicalism i don't think they won the debate that makes sense to me. Um, Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar both come after McGavern, the church growth movement for this issue. Um, and I'm, I'm going to get to that. Um, how did you say it, the Lausanne conference? Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think so. Who um, knows? <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to that one. And also uh, the Houston conference in a moment, but I want to pause here because there was a, also a meaningful chapter for me. I live at a, I live right off of Temple's campus, right? And we planted a church in North Philly that eventually merged with the one in Fishtown that I'm leading now. But Messiah Philly was an important part of that. And we have people in Circle of Hope that came from Messiah Philly. um, And I used to speak there. And when it was still a thing, it's not anymore. And you get into that in the book too. Um, So it's close to home to a lot of our listeners. So I want to detail this a little bit. What's the legacy of Messiah Philly? What's the uh, what lessons did we learn from it in terms of urban ministry, colorblindness, and anti-racism? Um, and this yeah. is also related because we're it's a Brethren in Christ thing and Circle of Hope right now is connected yeah. to the BIC. So, yeah, what, so talk about well, the legacy of Messiah Philly because this is especially interesting to our people. Yeah, the well, the legacy. Uh, I mean, that's the legacy is tricky. It's easier for me to, I'll get to the legacy or speculate about it. But I, I do think the the bigness of it, Brethren in Christ, matters even to how it started in the first place. I mean, I, I think that starting this urban campus in 1968, uh, that's not like a normal thing for a white evangelical college to do. Um, but I, I, so... I think that even in the trajectory of the campus, you see this shift from, uh, and this actually relates to what you were mentioning earlier about justice, diversity. In the early days of the campus, you'd see people involved like Ronald Sider, who is the acting director for a while, who are trying to think about justice and how do we enact a countercultural vision? How do we live in urban America as anti-racist, justice-oriented Christians? Like, they're concerned about these things. And the blowback from the Messiah community at large is so strong, you know? And, And I think that in that context, as we move into the 80s, 
you see this the campus sort of domesticated and it sure. becomes like this space of like diversity and experience like you mm -hmm. sort of consume this urban experience and but the idea that there's going to be some broader justice uh outcome or or is is sort of left to the side which is which is distinct by the way from like i i my impression and folks who are listening who who went there you know <laughs> can speak to their experience my impression is that a lot of people who went there that it was transformative for them you know that it that it was something that awakened them to social justice and issues of race in a really positive way and and the problem i think is systemic in that like the amount of support that the institution and evangelical stakeholders more broadly gave to this experiment like it was a tiny amount of support like this thing was on life support you know for for a long time and here messiah had this like amazing thing that could have they could have developed and invested in and become you know a leader in evangelical urban social justice experience and and training and that just was not an institutional priority right sure um and so the sure. legacy what's the legacy then <laughs> well i mean it's i remember we Boy, we were upset when they were closing the campus, when they couldn't afford it, when they couldn't prioritize the money. We wanted it to keep going. We cared about it. We thought the ministry yeah. was important. And because we had the fruit, you had people, and I won't name their names, but people who went to Messiah came to Philly and that experience in Philly, and they were taking temple classes too, right? So there was like right. this cool kind of thing happening. And I went to temple, so I care about temple. Um, and temple has a good race program. Um and that's that's where you got that's where you studied too. Yeah, yeah, um, my PhD. And you could see the transformation. People became anti-racist, yeah. interested in this work. So, like, yeah. hey, you're actually making disciples here. Like these people are actually changing, and it's just sad that it couldn't keep going. So, yeah, but and and I th I think the legacy there, the legacy is, or or not, or the lesson, right? And and again, I don't want to define people's experience right they they can speak to their experience but in in my research the the sense is the more that i'm caring about these issues of race the more that i'm following jesus into these spaces the more distance is being created between me and the evangelical mainstream the less supported i am the harder it is to get funding <laughs> you know and and that is um I mean, that's a sad commentary. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's very sad. You know, um, it's this, it's, it's, uh, it is not a nice part of the story, yeah. you know? So I hear that. And I, and I, and I, I, Mike, the prophetic word to Christians is, you know, if you don't keep doing this work, you don't keep putting money into it, passion, you know, it'll, it'll get swept away. You know, we're yeah. up against a tidal force of racism that we have to continue to work against. So even a good idea doesn't last as one if we don't keep putting the work into it. Right. Um, yeah, we had the Lausanne uh, conference um, and it was related to evangelicalism and social justice, evangelism and social justice, these two poles that you keep working on in the book. 
And it, how do you think it fell short of of uniting those two polls? And I was very inspired by uh, Clarence Hilliard, who like mm-hmm. is this evangelical who is really inspired by James Cone and liberation theology. Like that's yeah. really interesting that that dude in this very evangelical environment is talking about, you know, God being ontologically black or something like that. You know, yeah. that's, that seems so um, unique. Yeah. To have evangelicalism influenced by liberation theology. So how did it fall short and what was Hilliard's critique specifically? Yeah. Yeah. So the Lausanne Congress, this was 1974 and this was sort of, initiated by Billy Graham, and it was sort of evangelicals' answer to the ecumenical Protestants, you know, gatherings. And this was an unprecedented world gathering of of evangelicals. It was a, a major event. And at the time, partly because of Padilla's speech, Padilla gave this headline address where he just blasted the church growth movement and and said, you know, we need a gospel that produces a radical reorientation of the entire life and one's relationship to society. It doesn't just save your soul, okay? And so headlines coming out of that Congress were like, oh, evangelicalism turns toward the social and this is a, a shift. But what you see in the years after it is a conscious, concerted effort on the part of church growth leaders, some folks uh, with Christianity Today, uh, just more conservative American evangelicals to say, no, we're not we're not moving in that direction. We're going to keep the absolute priority of evangelism. And I think that in terms of commandeering institutional resources, it's the white Americans who, who win that battle, um, but not without, as you say, just some really potent critiques from people like Clarence Hilliard. And Hilliard, he was a co-pastor at Circle Church in Chicago, which was this interracial church. The other pastor was white. And Hilliard he got this amazing article, which you were referring to published it. I don't know how, I don't know why Christianity today published it. Um, but in this article, yeah, uh, CT published this piece about like liberation <laughs> theology. I don't know if they'd publish that now, you know, I know, I know. I'm, I, so this was 1976. They published this piece where Hilliard is um, saying down with the honky Christ up with the funky Jesus. And, and he's literally talking about Jesus being black and he is calling to task people like Graham, people like McGavern, this, the Christianity today article does not name Graham, right? Because it's Christianity today. They're not, it's not going to name Graham, but he's talking about Graham um, who are in Hilliard's view just inviting people to have this transactional, easy conversion. You know, you say a prayer, Jesus saves you, everything's good. And Hilliard is saying, no, followers of Christ need to become black. <laughs> and, and of course, he's not talking about phenotype, right? He's, 
he's talking about right, exactly exactly um he's talking about theology and one's orientation to society and that blackness is the best means americans have to understand what it means to follow christ and he's yeah like you said he's directly influenced by by cone he's quoting cone um and he's not saying that you know christianity is merely social and the individual doesn't need to have a conversion experience and put their faith in christ he's not saying that he's he's retaining this um distinct evangelical sensibility but he's he's actually saying these conversions we're supposedly producing are too cheap they're not they're not doing anything you know um and so hilliard actually uh, was fired well he i guess technically he resigned uh, he he left circle church and the and it was related to this kind of stuff exactly because because he he was trying to preach a sermon very similar to the article the sermon was a little harder hitting than the article was and the board uh refused to approve him delivering this sermon and that that was kind of the crux of the issue and he left along with the entire black portion of the congregation and uh so hilliard is like to me it's like he shows like this is possible within the context of evangelical theology you know like you can be anti-racist in this way in the context of evangelicalism but it also shows like you know he got fired for it he you know he 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 was on the margins you know he he didn't have the, anything like the influence of people like graham and McAvern. Totally, totally. I mean, that's so that 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 character. I mean, your book is so good because it introduces the audience to these very unique prophets, and I would call them prophets. And, and you know, mm -hmm. Howard Jones in his own right too, right? That that come up and say something in the middle of colorblind Christianity. Yeah. Um, and, I'm going to link that say, article, by the way, in our show notes down with the honky Christ with the funky Jesus. So our listeners, and I want to give credit to. Do you know um, Dr. Sung Chan Ra? Yeah, yeah, I know Ra. He um he actually wrote his dissertation. Uh there's a, a lot in his dissertation about Hilliard. And I really leaned on his research. Uh so he he really um uncovered oh, wow. Hilliard's story more than anyone. That's awesome. That's awesome. So then almost as a response to the Lazon Congress, it seems to me the Houston conference and a, Peter Wagner um He's trying to talk about different ethnic groups in the United States, mm -hmm. and he excludes black people from the list of ethnic groups. And then mm -hmm. also, for some reason, from planning the conference. Yeah. So, like, yeah. it's clearly a major debacle. Yeah. Um, and how does can you explain the impact of that 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 racist decision, what that did to the movement, what that what that showed us? Yeah. Yeah, how do I where do I begin here? Because it to understand what was going on. The the Houston Congress, I mean, and this is in very much in keeping with church growth movement. This is 1980s, 1984, right? Yeah. Well, the, the Congress, the conference happened in 85. 85, okay. Planning began years earlier. 
uh, back in 81 or 82. But uh, right from the start, uh, the idea that, you know, we're going to evangelize ethnic America, this is actually a church growth movement kind of thing. Like we're going to reach people in their ethnic groups, right? We're going to target distinct ethnic groups. And, uh, but as you say, right from the beginning, Wagner, who was sort of McGavran's right-hand guy, Wagner was like McGavran's heir apparent, you know, as, as a leader in the church growth movement. And Wagner and the other folks he was working with, uh, they deliberately exclude Black evangelicals from the definition. Uh, and so you have European ethnic groups, you have deaf people, you have Asians, you have African, well, Africans, maybe even Africans, I need to go back and look, but not African-Americans. And this was like an ad hoc definition created to justify the, the exclusion. Uh, because as, as I found out in my research, you know, I found these letters that were like smoking guns where Wagner is saying like, Hey, you know, me and the other denominational leaders, like we've had bad experiences working with black people. Like they take control of the meetings and they, they understand how power works. They know how to use it. And they intimidate the other ethnic leaders, all of this stuff, like that you can't believe he like wrote this down and, and, and sent it to, to people. Um, so it was very deliberate and very concrete. And, but the, what's interesting about it, I think, is that it goes back to this social justice versus evangelism thing. Wagner's thinking, if black people are part of this conference planning, they're going to try to make it more about social justice. And that's not what this is. This is an evangelism conference. And so, but, but this is, this is the crazy thing where like the theological and the racial become entangled. Absolutely. Because you could say, because we want this to be an evangelism conference, we're only going to invite black evangelicals who we consider to be safe. You know, we're going to invite E.V. Hill or something, and he'll just talk about evangelism, but they don't even do that. They, the exclusion is explicitly racial. Like we're not going to invite any black people, you know? I mean that, yeah, that, that is, that is so wild. Like it basically makes it seem like evangelism is a racist idea. Like the way that you're like, come on. Yeah. And, and you can, you know, you could say, okay, it's one random conference, blah, 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 whatever. But this is like, church growth movement leaders, the Lausanne movement leaders, Southern Baptist leaders, like this is a major event, you know? And, and so then it, it starts to blow up, right? Because black evangelicals hear rumblings of like, why aren't, why is this conference happening? And we're not part of it. And so Wagner and others try to put a bandaid on it and they say, oh, well, let's invite some black pastors as observers to the conference. And while there, they can plan their own conference, you know, and, you know, that just raises a whole other set of questions. So, okay. Black people are the one group who need their own separate conference. And totally. And you're like, like the way they handle that is hilarious because they're like wanting to make sure that they're in the room with the black pastors to show them how it's done to like make sure that they plan it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
-hmm. So it's like they have to have their own conference, but you kind of want to be in charge of that one as well. (laughs) Oh, it's a mess. Totally. It's a big mess. It's a big mess. Um, And there's more we could get into to that, but I want to get to a few more things before we go, um, before our time's up. In the 1990s, it seems like racial reconciliation is really popular. Circle of Hope was planted in the 1990s. You want it to be uh, a racially reconciling church. John Perkins influenced us a lot. The I and and you even said the idea of like making anti-racists one person at a time, very relational. Um, we would even say incarnational approach in yeah. circle. Um, so it's it, it started in the 90s, it seems like to me, Promise Keepers was a big part of it too, right? Yeah. Um, Promise Keepers is this big men's conference. I had a huge gathering in 1997. I think my dad went that year. So like we had PK stuff all over the house. Um, how did it start? And then what are some of the pitfalls it faced? Um, it means uh, how did the racial reconciliation movement start and what are the yeah. pitfalls it faced? And then get into, do you think it failed to confront systemic racism as we know it today? Yeah. Yeah, great questions. It's such a fascinating moment, this racial reconciliation dynamic. And in some ways, it does go back to people like Perkins. I mean, Perkins is in ministry in the 60s and 70s in Mississippi. And like you say, it's incredibly incarnational. And it's incredibly challenging as a vision of the Christian life uh, in terms of you know, he has his three R's, you know, you, uh, you relocation, I'm going to get the R's wrong, uh, uh, redistribution, reconciliation. Um, and it's in, in incarnational, you uh, make yourself in solidarity with the poor. And part of the path I trace is that the, the cost of racial reconciliation going mainstream is that all the radical edge to it is cut off. Uh, And what's left is a much more gauzy, sentimental friendship. And let's let's be friends with each other. Let's make a relationship. Let's be reconciled. The relocation, redistribution, that's left on the cutting room floor, right? And so by the time it's going mainstream with Promise Keepers, I think it is still quite challenging to many evangelicals, even in its reduced form. Uh, but it, but it is. I mean, I think in terms of how it relates to systemic racism, I actually think we should say it's not trying to deal with systemic racism. <laughs> That's actually not the goal as such. The goal is racial harmony in the context of Christian community. Systemic racism is a category that's almost unrecognized in mainstream racial reconciliation discourse and movements. Um, and in that respect, that kind of journey from being radical to being appropriated is the same kind of journey that colorblindness itself goes. You know, like Howard Jones is using colorblindness to press for change way back in the 60s. White evangelicals evangelicals turn around and use colorblindness to say, don't you know we're one in Christ? Stop talking about race, you know? 
And so, so the colorblind rhetoric of Jones and the colorblind rhetoric in general can be a, you get into it, one in Christ, Galatians 3.28, the whole thing. Yeah. And then that, and I've seen this happen, that is then weaponized against anti-racism. Yeah. Why are you bringing race up to this? We already said we're one in Christ. We're already a new humanity, whatever, whatever, right? So there's yeah. this, uh, and it's, I, 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 I would, I think it's a dirty trick. That's just yeah. me. Um because I think the gospel record and the New Testament record, see, now I'm preaching, I got to stop, no, gives us it. something different. You know, yeah. when Paul is ma- is infuriated when Peter treats the, 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 the Jews differently than the Greeks, right? Yeah. Um, and there is no idea that when we become one in Christ, that that oneness is weaponized against the oppressed, against the yeah. lowly, against yeah. the downtrodden. Well, and but and that's where... You know, this is getting a little bit beyond our what the racial reconciliation thing in the 90s, but I think it's so important. One of the things I would want people to take away from my book is precisely what you're saying, like the, the nuance to be able to, to understand that this discourse, these scriptures about being one in Christ are not inherently liberating or oppressive. What are we doing with them? Right. Why exactly. are we deploying these scriptures? And and to say, and I've actually seen you, Johnny, I don't want to put, I, this is a very rough pra- paraphrase. I think I saw this on your blog. <laughs> oh, no. But kind of the kind of this sensibility that says, because we are one in Christ, we can have these hard conversations. Sure. It's a completely different thing to say, because we're one in Christ, shut up. <laughs> totally. And, but that's what people do. They use it to try to shut down these conversations. So, Yeah. And that's the, that's the risk. And I think that's why you, you, the, the racial reconciliation when it, because it's a beautiful idea. Yeah. But when it fails and the, that love that's supposed to connect us fails, we, st- I, at least from my perspective, I start to say, oh, these issues are not just personal. Yeah. They're not just reducible to the relationship. There's bigger forces happening. You know, when you look at what happens to promise keepers, you you don't editorialize about this. You stop short of saying promise keepers fell apart because people are too racist. You know, <laughs> you don't you, you kind of flirt with it, but you don't yeah. go all the way there. Right. Because you're a historian. And I appreciate that. <laughs> but, but or Messiah Philly fell apart because people are racist. Right. You can do that. But <laughs> what you see, in my opinion, is these movements don't have their own momentum because they're going uphill and you got to keep pushing them uphill or else. And if you let go, they'll fall. You know, there's a gravitational pull to racism in the country that in the world really that slows down movements or we say slavery ended. So we're done. The civil rights acts passed. So we're done. What more do you want? Yeah. But you got to keep going until we're, until we're all free. Yeah. And that, I mean, the idea that white evangelicals and some historians and commentators have, you know, given these exceedingly generous interpretations of, you know, what white evangelicals want and have talked about them being opposed to racism and such. And I just don't see that. Like there, if, if there's a movement that says, hey, we're going to deliver racial harmony, you're not going to have to worry about race anymore. Everyone's going to be united. They'll say, oh, sure. Great. Sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. totally. Say, we're going to attack racial inequality. We're going to make systemic reform. No, no, no. They're not there for that. <laughs> Absolutely. So 
you wrote this book and you got to the end, you're in the nineties and you don't. And then, and then in your conclusion, it's Barack Obama, Donald Trump, like lots of things. Like this is a live conversation that's happening. Yeah. So what's next do you think for colorblind Christians in this new civil rights era that I think we're in? Like I, mm-hmm. right now, I think we're in something new that's happening. Yeah. Um, how does black lives matter? The election of Barack Obama, Donald Trump, affect what's next for race and racism among evangelicals and colorblind Christians. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that I don't know, but I, I think I would join of course other folks in, in suggesting that evangelicalism is sort of splintering in new ways. I, I don't know that Christian colorblindness can sort of hold the coalition together in the way that it helped to hold it together for several decades. Uh, but I also think that highly educated folks and folks in urban circles and things can lose sight of how small our numbers are. <laughs> I, I think that the white evangelical mainstream is fairly uh, content in its support for racism and its support for Donald Trump. And um, I I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it seems like there's radicalization all around. Like there's good radicalization, like black evangelicals saying, okay, it's time to stand up. It's time to, you know, things like leave loud and, and so on. Um, but then there's the radicalization from the white evangelical mainstream that like, in some ways things have gotten worse. Um, in some ways, Christian colorblindness now seems too, too nice, maybe. And I mean, even the colorblind Christians get a lot of flack. I mean, there was moments, and you didn't get into this, but like the never Trump evangelicals, you know, David French, Russell Moore, guys like this yeah. that are not, these aren't radical dudes. Right. They're standing up against abject white supremacy. They're getting, I think someone called like Tim Keller a leftist or something crazy yeah, or yeah, just like, what yeah. is going on? Right. You know, um, the, yeah, the new resurgence of it is far more and in, in many ways racist, more white supremacist yeah. than even it was at times in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's this sort of the sort of perennial debate of like, evangelicals and Trump, like, is it a change? Is it an unveiling of what was already there? And uh, I think it's both. And I I think in some ways, things really are worse in terms of race and evangelicalism right now today than they were 30 years ago. Absolutely. Um, And that's, and that's incredibly sobering. And that says something about like, well, then what was the racial reconciliation movement accomplishing? Right. I mean, those are good questions for us to grapple with. And who are we going to be next? How's it going to work? Um, so my, so like when you finish this book, what can you give us any hope? I mean, I know historians aren't supposed to give us hope, so I'm not yeah. like, yeah, you know, I guess that's my job. Yes, but, yes, your job Johnny. Yeah. <laughs> but like it is, are we getting to a point where there's going to be a, you know, a, a, a moment of reckoning um, or do we just have to reimagine how we do this whole Christian thing, this whole evangelical thing altogether? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a good person to look to for hope, but just for, for what it's worth. I, uh, 
I mean, I, I think that even in, in the act of writing the book, sort of my ethical North Star were some of these Black evangelical figures in the book. And they and people like them give me hope. Um, That's awesome. And so, so there's that, you know, Jesus is risen. There's that. But that's beyond my Amen. capacity as a historian. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I think we have to hold to our hope in Christ, um, that new things can happen. Um, and we should expect the work to be difficult, you know, because we're yeah. up against one of the ser- most serious sinful forces yeah. that we've ever encountered. Where can we find you, Jesse? How do we keep track of what you're doing online? Are you on Twitter? Yes, I am on Twitter with a, my old odd uh screen name jnc the historian uh if you google jesse curtis colorblind christians or jesse curtis valparaiso i imagine you find me okay and what are you working on next i know this book came out last year right i yeah the book came out just a few months ago and right now what i'm working on is man just trying to stay on an even keel as I, you know, as a father, as, as a, as a teacher at, at Valpo. And the, I don't want to rush in to a second book. I, I want it to be something that uh, is results from fire in my bones. As yeah. Were, I hear you, brother. You know, so I, I so I, the short answer is I really don't know what's next. Okay. Well, keep us posted. If you have any articles that come out that you want to share with us, we'd love to put them out there. Thanks for such a good conversation, Jesse. I really appreciate it. Hey, likewise, Johnny. Thank you so much. Yeah. This last segment is Spiritual Show and Tell. We want to um, share this, share what nourishes us. And it's, it's a way of letting ourselves be known. And also, um, hopefully, encouraging you to tend to your own soul, to pay attention to what nourishes you and share it with someone else. So, pastors, what is nourishing your soul this this week? I've had a contentious relationship with Dave Bazan for many years. I've been listening to him since high school. He used to do Page of the Lion. Then he did a solo stuff, and he's out with a new record. At one point, him and I got into an argument on Twitter. So that's uh, I've had some some interaction with him. That I've been to his shows and asked him questions. Dave Bazan made his career by being a Christian and then kind of falling out of faith and becoming like an ex-evangelical. And he made some good records based on that. But in his newest record called Havasu, which is a lake that he named it after, it's 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 a reflection on his middle school life, his upbringing, his childhood. I like the record a lot, and I like this song called First Drum Set. And it's about how he moved from being a clarinet player to finding his true love of being a drummer. And the song is composed in such a way that the first verse, when it's just a clarinet that he's playing, barely has any drums in it. And then when he gets into the drum section, you hear the whole kit. It's super fun, it's exciting, and it gets you going. The reason I really liked it, though, is this. There's a line, I'm going to say it to you, and maybe we'll play it and play a part of the other song too. My dad's concern, no, this is what he says, I longed for the saxophone. My dad's concern was that the embouchure was easy and might make my lips too weak to ever play a woodwind in an orchestra, an experience he wanted me to have. 
Now, why is that so important? Why is that so good? Because I'm listening, and then he says embouchure. And then I know what embouchure is because Rachel taught me what embouchure is. On many episodes ago, you got to go listen to that. To, to, you got to, you know, go find the context of this. This is like a Bible passage you're reading right now. You got to go back to other podcasts to discover the moment that this matters. It matters because I knew what it was because Rachel taught me. And so, you know... Hearing embouchure in another context was very exhilarating, and I immediately <laughs> sent it to the pastures. Julie was completely confused, didn't know why the hell I was doing this. And I then, couldn't even understand the word. I've never seen that word written, and I was like, what is he saying? <laughs> exactly. That's what happens. I, I, I looked up the word right away, because I needed to know how it looked. But that's why I liked it. I, I liked the idea of looking back at your childhood and seeing how you pursued your passions and found your way. But it was just a, it was a fun connection that I had. And I actually do recommend the record to you. The artist is moving beyond kind of his post-faith cynicism. And I think that's actually resulting in some pretty good music. All right, check this out. Here's the part where he says, embouchure. I long for the saxophone. My dad's concern was that the embouchure was easy and might make my lips too weak to ever play a woodwind in an orchestra and And then here's the part where the transition of the song happens. I looked at my dad. He looked at me. I nodded my head. And he agreed to trade in my clarinet to give my I think it's pretty impressive that he could make an album about his um, middle school years of his life and make it fun and exciting because (laughs) there's almost nothing about my middle school years that is fun and exciting. (laughs) I hear you. I'm I'm thinking Johnny's like helping to redeem my my marching band career. All those oh yeah, and receiving insults from some classmates. Is the embouchure of a French horn hard? Yes. Compared to like other things. So there you go. You'd be you'd please Dave Bazan's dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the concert horn is harder than the marching horn. There Rachel, I, I I really wish that you would put. A photo of yourself in marching band in the show notes, please. You can, yeah, we can figure out how to do that. We'll make a link for it. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. And then you can do it. Uh, but uh, this this conversation is nourishing my soul. I also finished an old classic book this week um, that was such a gift to my soul. It's called Hind's Feet on High Places. Um by Hannah Hernard. Uh, 
and it's you know it's been around for forever it 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 probably was published in the early 1900s i should have looked it up but um my mom read it to me when i was very little and it made way more sense to me now reading it as a grown up trying to follow jesus because it's about this little girl named much afraid and she wants to go up on the high places to get uh, away from her enemies that are like pride and self-pity and resentment. And uh, she walks with a limp. Um, she, her face is a little bit disfigured and she's, she's fearful. Um, but she runs, she meets the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and he tells her he'll take her to the high places and he will heal her. And she'll be able to like leap around the mountains with him. Um, and so she she's trying to believe him and trust him. And he gives her two companions for the journey. And he says, you got to trust me about who these companions are. And their names are sorrow and suffering. And mm. But they are the most wonderful. She doesn't want to trust them at first. Of course, she doesn't want to hold their hands. Who, who wants sorrow and suffering? Mm. But as she learns to trust them and move with them she gets to the high places and it's just it's just beautiful um it's a beautiful journey it's a dangerous journey it 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 connected me so much with the real life journey of trying to follow Jesus and trust him as the as my shepherd and hear his voice and you know participate in this process of surrender um, but I highly recommend it. Hind's feet on high places. That's awesome. I feel like I recognize that title, like from my childhood. Maybe my parents read it or something, <clears throat> or my grandparents. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I was thinking about what I have to share, and um, last week I spent two days in a just starting this um, year-long journey uh, uh, with two days of training with Resma Menachem and Carlin Quinn. Um, he's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, and they were um, leading this, this two-day training was like the foundations of um, somatic abolitionism. And then from there, we go into like a, a monthly monthly workshop and triads where we're going to meet together and process what we're learning. Anyway, it was so intense and there was so much to it that um, I don't even think I can talk about it mm. <laughs> yet. I think I'm just beginning to um, digest all that I was given and process it in some ways to like actually learn from it. So I hope I can talk more about it in the future. But um, to have the space to do that and to uh, be on this journey and to learn from uh, these people um, was a gift. And part, part of, I think, the one takeaway I can share is, you know, after this was all on Zoom. So after being on Zoom for f like 15 hours in these two days, 
in this intent, doing this intense uh, work that I'm trying to process in my head. Um, but but so much of what this is about is um, connecting to our bodies and. Um, it just turned out that I had I had a gift for a massage for my birthday that I had scheduled mm. and then rescheduled because of snow, uh, like a snow day. So I had set that up for a Friday night, and it turned out to be such a gift to be able to go get this massage. It was a Thai massage, which I've never had before, um, and it was wonderful. It was it was such a gift to. to take care of my body that way and also like pay attention to what was hurting and where I carry my tension and um, kind of get out of my head and into my body. Um, so, and I did that actually uh, because Brie in our congregation had talked months ago in a Sunday meeting about massage and how that is a, <clears throat> a discipline um, of caring for herself. And so for what it's worth, maybe me talking about this will uh, encourage someone to find find ways to take care of your body um, and to use your body to, to process what our, what our brains can't do alone. You know, like we're integrated beings and I'm guilty of getting stuck in my head sometimes. So the gift of having a body, it really does help us learn. Mm. Beautiful. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Um, talk back to us about anything in this um, episode that's sticking with you. We, we want to keep the dialogue going. Write to us at resistandrestorepodcast at circleofhope.net.